Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast, our fortnightly discussion all about success, modern business and the lives of entrepreneurs. I'm Joe Bullmore, I'll be your host for the day and I'm joined this afternoon by Bill Browder, the American financier, author, activist and Vladimir Putin's public enemy, number one. This is one of the most eye-opening and poignant episodes we've ever recorded. Bill is, like all of our guests, an incredible entrepreneur and business person. In fact, he set up and ran perhaps the most successful hedge fund of all time. But it's what Bill did after this that really puts him in a category of one. And as you'll hear, his incredible story takes in crooked plutocrats, exorbitant wealth, international intrigue, torture, imprisonment, tragedy, and in the end, a bold and ingenious bid for justice. But before we begin, I'd love to tell you about the Clubhouse, a new kind of private members club brought to you by Gentleman's Journal. Clubhouse members get two bumper issues of Gentleman's Journal magazine delivered straight to their door, full of all those invaluable insights from the worlds of entrepreneurship, style, politics and culture that you'd expect, as well as exclusive deals with a range of partner brands, restaurants and hotels. Not to mention some lovely invitations to some very exciting events across the year. In fact, our podcast listeners, which is you... Now get 20% off a Clubhouse annual membership, meaning you'll get the full Gentleman's Journal experience for just under £48 a year, which sounds a bit like a bargain to me. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. That's P-O-D-20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. Right, on with the podcast. Bill, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast. Great to be here. We usually feature entrepreneurs and incredible business people here, and you, of course, were a very successful entrepreneur and businessman, but it's what that led you to afterwards that's arguably even more fascinating. And one of those things, of course, which if you search your name often comes up, is that you are Putin's public enemy number one. Do you think that's an accurate title? Um, I wish it weren't, Um, (laughs) but unfortunately um, I've done something which is... Um, so offensive to Putin that it's unforgivable, which is that um, I'm probably the first Westerner to put his vast $200 billion fortune at risk. And since he values money more than human life, um, that creates the, the, the most panic situation for him. And so for about 10 years, he's been after me in all sorts of different ways. And, and, uh, and that really does create all sorts of problems for me in life. I can imagine. Is it really 200 million, 200 billion, excuse me, that would make him the richest man in the world by some margin? Um, He is the richest man in the world. Um, And the thing about it is that it's not like Bill Gates or Warren Buffett, um, who became so rich through, you know, enterprise or through good investments. Um, He became rich through uh, corruption, theft, kleptocracy, and murder. Wow. Um, I want to go back to the start then for a moment because you have the most incredible kind of family. Your father was a a maths genius. I think your brother went to university to study physics at 15. Were you aware you were growing up in an incredibly intelligent household? Well, so so I I had this family of of, um, prodigies and geniuses and and, um, I was just a normal kid. You know, I didn't have the same talents as my uh, father and brother and And uncles as well. My uncles were mathematicians. My my father and his two brothers were all famous mathematicians. And so, and I just thought that there was something wrong with me. Um, I, I thought, isn't everyone supposed to be this way? And, and like, okay. I'm really stupid because 
Um, I didn't go to uh, – my father went to MIT at 14, my wow. brother University of Chicago at 15. And here I was just sort of struggling through high school like everybody else. Okay. What were you like at 14? Um, well, uh, coming from this family of geniuses, I had to somehow carve out my way, and, and uh, I was rebelling from this family and, and trying to find my way and or make, make my mark, uh, doing all sorts of stupid things. Um, I uh, grew my hair long. <clears throat> you can't tell now if you see me. <laughs> see, I don't have any hair. But uh, I grew my hair long, and it grew into an afro. I thought that that might upset my family. Right. Uh, didn't seem to work. Um, I... Uh, I followed the Grateful Dead around for three months. Wow. Um, also, that didn't strangely upset my family. And, uh, but I then came up with this great way of upsetting my family, um, which was to put on a suit and tie and become a capitalist because um, in my family, communism was the, the, the way to go. Yeah. You've got an incredible family history kind of linked with communism. Your grandfather, Earl, was, was leader of the Communist Party. Is that right? So my grandfather, Earl Browder, was a labor union organizer mm. from Wichita, Kansas in the 1920s. Uh, he went to Russia in 1927. They, they said, if you like labor unionism, you're going to love communism. Right. Um, he gets to Russia. Um, he meets the young Russian girl who becomes my grandmother. My father is born over there. And um, five years later, in 1932, um, they all return to America. And uh, my grandfather becomes the general secretary of the American Communist yeah. Party. And he ran for president uh, against Roosevelt um, in 1936 and 1940 on the communist ticket. Um, was imprisoned by Roosevelt in 1941 for for various uh, politically motivated prosecutions, and and uh, and then pardoned in 42 because it created such a scandal. But that didn't uh, help him. In 1945, he was um, expelled from the Communist Party for being too much of a capitalist. Okay. And then in the 1950s, he was then persecuted viciously during the McCarthy era. Yeah. Wow. So your way of rebelling against that heritage was to go and become a capitalist. And you did that in kind of post-Soviet Russia, I guess, just after the, the Berlin Wall had fallen. So I graduated um, business school. So I went to business school as my sort of in my quest for being a capitalist. I graduated uh, Stanford Business School in 1989, which was the year that the Berlin Wall came down. And as every business school graduate tries to do, I was trying to find a great career afterwards and trying to figure out what that would be. And one day I had this epiphany, which is my grandfather was the biggest communist in America, and the Berlin Wall has just come down. I'm going to become the biggest capitalist in, or try to become the biggest capitalist in Eastern Europe. Wow. And did you speak Russian? Didn't speak a word of Russian or any other Eastern European languages. Um, uh, and in 1989, I moved to London because um, I, was, that was, I couldn't get – there was nothing going on actually in Eastern Europe at the time other than the Berlin Wall coming down. Um, I mo- moved to London uh, to try to get closer to the whole thing and had several jobs. But the, the job that kind of um, uh, sort of set me on this course was uh, working at Solomon Brothers, which mm. doesn't exist anymore. But uh, for, for anyone who uh, – has read a book called Liar's Poker by Michael Lewis. It describes this firm, which was the sort of complete archetype of, of a dog-eat-dog Wall Street firm. Yeah. And they, um, they assigned me uh, to go up to uh, Russia. Um, and uh, that's what set off my whole problems with Putin many years later. Of course. What was the atmosphere like in Russia at the time? Was it kind of a, a Wild West? Well, so what happened was that... Um, the Berlin Wall came down, the Soviet Union ended, um, Russia became an independent country, 
And the president of Russia, a guy named Boris Yeltsin, um, wanted to uh, end communism. And his way of ending communism was to give away all the property that the state owned, which mm-hmm. was all property, to the people in the form of what they call mass privatization. And so they gave away all this property to the people, and it was just complete and absolute chaos. And after the property was given away, m- most of it ended up in the hands of, of 22 individuals who are now known as the oligarchs. Mm. Um, but little crumbs were falling off the table, and, and uh, there were shares of these Russian companies trading at like 99.7% discounts to the same companies in the West. And I saw this opportunity, and I decided that um, if you could buy these shares and they didn't take them away from you, um, which was highly likely, by the way. But if they didn't, then then they could be worth 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 times um, the price you paid for them. And, yeah. And uh, I started a business to invest in these uh, companies. The Hermitage Fund. The Hermitage Fund. You were still a young man then. How did you convince Western entrepreneurs, Western investors to give you their money? Well, most of the people I went to, I couldn't convince. Okay. I, would, I would say that um, out of every 20 meetings I had, 19 of them said no. But um, there's an expression, uh, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. And, um, okay, yeah. and, and um, in that moment in time, uh, I was in my late 20s, and uh, at that moment in time, uh, nobody had any more experience investing in Russia than I did because it had just opened up, and I was like the first guy in. And so um, even though I was highly inexperienced, very wet behind the ears and naive, I knew more about Russian investments than anyone in the world. And the case was very compelling. Um, for anyone who looked at, at the upside versus the downside. Um, if you could make 50 times your money um, <laughs> uh, and there was a decent chance that they didn't take it away from you, then then that's pretty compelling. Yeah. Were you immediately successful? Um, well, I mean, it was, it was always a struggle at every step of the way because first, uh, even inside Solomon Brothers, um, I tried to convince them uh, – to do this, and, and everybody thought I was out of my mind. And uh, I eventually convinced them, and we made a lot of money. And then I set out on my own, and and, uh, uh, and not that many people wanted to invest with me right out, out of the gate because it was all pretty crazy. But I had one investor, a man named Edmund Safra. Um, he's no longer with us, but he was, the um, at the time, one of the biggest uh, sort of uh, moguls in the world of private banking in the world. And he gave me the first $25 million to invest. And um, we had the most spectacular start of any investment fund in the history of investment funds. In the first 18 months of our operations, we went up uh, 850%. Um, the $25 million he put in uh, started to attract attention, and then people started to add money. And we ended up uh, in 18 months going from $25 million to a billion. Wow. And uh, I was the best performing fund manager in the world in 1997. I was featured on in the Financial Times, uh, Wall Street Journal, Business Week as some type yeah. of modern financial genius. Okay. And, and I was, um, my clients were sending their private jets to Russia to ferry me back to the south of France to toast me on their yachts, and I was all of 31 years old. Okay. How did that feel? Did you feel like you were invincible at that point? Well, it, it was like, um, I didn't really have a chance to feel anything. It was like, um, if you've ever been on a, like a, a dirt bike on a rough road, you just hold on for, you're holding on for dear life. You're just looking, you know, where's the next rock? Where's the next thing that's going to fall over? Where, you know, where's the cliff? Yeah. Um, I, I wasn't, I really didn't have time to like reflect on it at all. I was okay. just holding on for dear life, holding, hoping that it was all going to not go over the cliff. 
Did you enjoy the yachts and the private jets? Did you have a moment then to think you'd made it? Um, I didn't have a moment at all to think of anything. I was okay. just literally, um, I mean, I, was going, I wasn't going to the yachts to feel good about myself. I was going there because, you know, my biggest client wanted to okay. have me there and he gave me a lot of money to manage and I wanted to, you know, make sure that he felt good about what we were doing. And then there was, uh, of course, the Russian financial crisis in 1998. Did that derail you? Well, so um, uh, completely and absolutely it derailed me. So the um, uh, I was the poster boy of uh, of the stock market rise um, previously, and uh, and when the um, Russian financial crisis hit, the um, uh, Ru- the Russian government defaulted on their bonds. Uh, they de- devalued their currency by seventy five percent, and the Hermitage Fund, which had I think one point one billion dollars in it, um, went down ninety percent. I wow. lost more than nine hundred million dollars of my clients' money, and. You know, the same people who were, had been entertaining me on their yachts were all looking at a 90% loss. And, uh, and for me, I lost a lot of money personally, but for me, the, the real um, problem uh, and, the real, and the thing that really bothered me the most was that I'd gone around the world meeting all these famous investors. 19 out of 20 of them said, no, totally not interested. One out of 20 said, you know, I'm, you, you seem like a compelling young man. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, and the case you make is, it sounds smart and reasonable. I'm going to take a risk on you. And um, then I subsequently lost them 90% of their money. And so I felt just horribly humiliated and, and ashamed of myself that I'd gone, that I'd really let these people down. And, and I, I, made, I made it my, um, you know, my, it, was, it was my only objective, which was to try to um, get them their money back. Okay. And at that point, it became even wilder, a Wild West in a way, didn't it? And these oligarchs kind of consolidated their power even more. So I had this huge chip on my shoulder. Uh, I'm trading at 10 cents on the dollar. I need to get them back to a dollar. And, and interestingly, from a, from, from a sort of objective economic basis, it shouldn't have been that impossible to do. So the companies that I owned, they were oil companies for the most part and a few other um, uh, natural resource companies, they were selling their oil in dollars, and they were paying their staff and their equipment and so on in rubles. And the ruble has devalued by 75%. And so um, the revenues are the same in dollars, but the, the costs have gone down by 75% in dollars. And so yeah, revenues minus costs equals profits. And um, in theory, the profits should have exploded. That was what and, and I thought, okay, I'm just going to sit back, wait for this to play itself through. I'm going to make the money back, and everyone will have had a bad experience, but they'll at least walk away with whole. Well, that's not what happened. And the reason it didn't happen was that the oligarchs, these um, 22 people who, had control, who controlled most of the Russian economy and controlled the majority of these companies, they, they're not nice people. They, they didn't get to be oligarchs by being nice guys. They got to be oligarchs by having the sharpest elbows, ready to break laws, ready to uh, run roughshod over everybody. And um, when they had first gotten their oil companies, they were immediately um, swarmed by investment bankers from from the city of London and and from New York, who all went to Moscow in their uh, fancy suits and Hermes ties and and, uh, said to these guys, we love your company. We think it's a great company. um, And we'd like to help you raise money. We can get you money, free money on Wall Street. And uh, the oligarchs all perked up. They, 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 this is like a double bonanza. First they steal these oil companies and then these Wall Street guys come and offer them all sorts of money from Wall Street. And, and, uh, 
and they say, yeah, 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 let, let's sign me up. We're, we're, let, let's, let's get some money from Wall Street. And uh, the, the uh, bankers say, yeah, yeah, that, that for sure, we'll, we're going to do that for you. Just one condition. Um, just don't scandalize your minority shareholders or do anything stupid because that, that's the only thing that people on Wall Street care about. And the oligarchs had to, had to have this like moment of reflection, like, wow, you know, it's not steel. I mean, that's kind of in our <laughs> DNA. And, uh, but then they thought, okay, well, well, why don't we just get this money first and then we can steal later? And so um, that was what kind of kept them in check up until the financial crisis of 1998. But after 1998, um, there, the Wall Street guys were no longer there. They, they, they would call up their banker, that fancy guy who showed up, and he wouldn't take their call or maybe he was fired. Um, and so, um, and so these guys were saying, wait a second, there's no longer any incentive to behave. Um, and in Russia, there's, no, there's never been any disincentive against misbehavior. So why don't we just steal everything that's there? And so the oligarchs embarked on an orgy of stealing, which has been unprecedented in the history of business. They were doing asset stripping, transfer pricing, embezzlement, dilution, and they were doing it on a massive scale. Um, and... Uh, and so they were going to try to steal the last 10 cents and the dollar that I had left. And okay. I was trying to get my money back for my clients. And, and so out of a matter of, of sheer necessity, um, I became an anti-corruption activist in Russia. Wow. So it wasn't a moral crusade at all. It was, it was kind of a business case you were making. Well, it was all kind of mixed up together. But the, the primary motivation was that these people were stealing money from my clients. And yeah. I wasn't going to let them. And, and it was I was appalled and, and, and shocked and in, indignant at the brazenness of it. And, and, uh, and it was completely wrong. And so, I mean, it all got mixed up together in the, the sort of um, uh, uh, anger at what they were doing. And, and my um, and motivations were to stop them. Yeah. Incredible. Did you know these people? What were they like personally? Um, I met a lot of them, you know, in, in passing. And, and there, you couldn't really um, get to know them very well because right. they were – and, and, and every time you would talk to an oligarch, you know, the, the, you get nothing from them and, and you could just tell they were lying about everything. And, and, uh, and I, I have these friends, uh, even to this day, they say, oh, yeah, I was with so-and-so. And, he, you know, he tells me that Putin doesn't have any money at all. And, and, like, um, and, he's, and he said it with – and he knows and he said it with such sincerity. I was like, you know, the, you know the, the, this lying is what they do. You can't believe yeah. the word they say. So you fought back and were you successful? Well, um, I was, <laughs> and, and it was it was remarkable. Um, so I started to the way I fought back was to research how these people went about doing the stealing, and, and uh, I have a team of really smart people working for me, and and uh, we and, and Russia remarkably is a, a very uh, transparent place. Well, you wouldn't think it is, but it's a transparent place because there's no data protection there. All information about everything is effectively for sale, for sale on disks from government agencies. I mean, things that you, you would never, should never be available. And so we were able to accumulate a huge amount of information about what was going on and then break it down and, and piece it together and figure out how they were doing the stealing. And, uh, and the other interesting thing about Moscow was that um, all the expats hung out in the same places. And so all the restaurants and bars that I would go to um, the West, the foreign correspondents for the Financial mm. Times and Wall Street Journal and AP and all these places would go to, and and so I had this all this great research and I had all this great access to the um, media, and so I went to these guys and I said, hey, um, 
you know, I've just found this massive fraud at Gazprom. Um, what do you think? You want to write about it? And, and I, they said, what is it? And then I show them my stuff. And, and I, they were looking at it with their eyes wide open. And they were saying, my God, you know, the, and they're thinking to themselves, this is great. He's just saved me like, like three months worth of research. I can, yeah. you know, I can like impress my boss and, and it just is all packaged up real nice. <laughs> and so we, we would give this stuff to the journalists. They would, of course, check it out to make sure that it, that it was true. And then they would write about it. And, um, and I didn't know what the effect was going to be. But it turned out that just as we were doing these um, exposés, these naming and shaming campaigns, this was just at the moment that Vladimir Putin had just come to power. And there's an expression, your enemy's enemy is your friend. And, and Vladimir Putin was fighting with the same guys I was fighting with. The oligarchs um, who were stealing money from me were stealing power from him. They had effectively privatized all the um, levers of government for themselves. Mm. And, and Vladimir Putin, as a newly a new and inexperienced and kind of fresh president, um, his objective was to try to... Um, Get bring the power back to the presidency. And so I've never met him. But to this day, I've not met him. I know a lot about him to this day, but I've never met him. Uh, but he, um, he became this strange um, ally in this fight. And every time I would expose one of these guys, he would come in like a ton of bricks going after the oligarchs. Um, and everybody was scratching their heads saying, well, what is, what's going on here? Why? You know, is Bill Browder part of the Putin plan? Is this like some yeah. kind of great, like clever way? And I and I, I never I just kept my mouth shut and just exposed people and didn't tell them what was going on and, and let people assume what they wanted to assume and um, and every time Putin would step in and stop something the share price would go up wow and it would go up and up and up <laughs> and so you know, we went from so we started the fund with twenty five million dollars it went to a billion it went down ninety percent to a hundred million and then after this start of this naming and shaming campaign it went from a hundred million to four and a half billion wow okay. And, and so it was the most spectacular business success you could ever imagine and spectacular moral success because um, it, it wasn't just about the money. At, at, at this point, you know, uh, every time we would get the bad guys, you could just like cut through the esprit de corps in my office. I mean, people, would, people my, my staff would have worked for free because yeah. um, it was just such a lot of fun to like go out and, and get these bad guys. And, and we were making Russia a better place, making money hand over fist for our clients and for ourselves. And it just seemed like too good to be true. Of course. And in some ways it was. Was there a chance then at the top of the roller coaster ride to, to get out? Well, the interesting thing is um, uh, there's always a chance to get out of any situation. Nobody ever does. However, however, um, what happened to me, and this is where the story gets, gets uh, twisted uh, and interesting, um, is that all this naming and shaming was working perfectly for a while. And then one day, Vladimir Putin said to himself, I really want to finally win with this war with the oligarchs. And so the way he went about that was to arrest the richest oligarch in Russia, a man named Mikhail Hordakovsky. He was the owner of an oil company called Yukos. And he arrested him off his private jet in Siberia, brought him back to Moscow, put him on trial. And when you're on trial in Russia, they put you in a cage. There's a 99.7% conviction rate. And uh, they figure you're going to be in a cage afterwards, wow. so they might as well keep you in the cage. And so they put him in a cage, and then they allowed the television cameras to film the richest man in Russia sitting in a cage. So imagine that you're the 17th richest person in Russia, and you, you see the richest person sitting in a cage. Um, what's your natural reaction? 
um, you want to make sure that you don't sit in that cage yourself. And yeah. so one by one by one, the oligarchs went to Putin uh, after Hartikovsky was convicted and said, Vladimir, what do we have to do so we don't sit in that cage? And he said 50%. Not for the Russian government or for the presidential administration of Russia, but for himself. Wow. That's and when he started... That's when that, that was the moment he became the, the richest man in the world. And, yeah. um, and did all of them pay up? Um, so almost all of them did. Mm. Um, uh, a couple of them didn't, and, and they're either dead or, or um, uh, uh, in exile or in jail. Wow. Um, but almost everybody else realized that there was nothing they could do other than pay up. And, and, uh, and so they became his business partners, and, I was continue, and they continued to steal, but he was getting 50% of that now. So his incentives reversed overnight almost. Exactly. And so I was carrying on doing what I was doing, not really reading the tea leaves. And, and, uh, and in November of 2005, after living there for 10 years and, and having become the largest foreign investor in Russia, I was flying back from London to Moscow on a Sunday. It was November 13th, 2005. And I arrive at the Shermetivo Airport, which is one of the two main airports in Russia, and I'd done this trip literally like every two weeks for the previous 10 years. And uh, uh, I was all very experienced with navigating the airport. I had a special pass to go to the VIP lounge. And I go to the VIP lounge and what should have been a uh, like a two-minute um, formality. Um, uh, they kept me sitting there for an hour. And then uh, eventually four heavily armed uh, border guards came in and arrested me and put me in the airport detention center. Wow. Uh, sat there not knowing whether I was going to be sent to Siberia or deported and uh, hoped to God I was going to be deported. And uh, thankfully, 15 hours later, uh, they <laughs> deported me. And uh, What went through your head in that 15 hours? Uh, a lot of really dark thoughts because, um, you know, the, I mean, it was just, you know, going from the highest high to all of a sudden uh, becoming a criminal, you know, they, they uh, you're, you're no longer a person the moment that you're arrested. What happens if you go to Siberia? D- well, do we know? Uh, you had nothing good. You, right. I mean, um, you'd die probably. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so in the morning, I, I, so I didn't know what was happening, and and I figured they they need like an hour, hour and a half to like process me if they're going to deport me, and I started banging on the banging on the bars at at uh, like you know there was an eleven o'clock flight. I knew that nine thirty. You know. Uh, they, they, and they just completely ignored me. I like was a non-person, not not a, no longer to be. Were you still in your suit and tie at that point? Yeah, uh, I think I took my tie off by 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 that point. <laughs> okay, but yeah. uh, and um, and then hour came, and they they still weren't ready for, ready for me. And and uh, you know, half hour before flight time, and I was convinced that, that this they weren't going to deport me. And then finally, like I don't know, sixteen minutes before the plane was going to take off, they grabbed me and frog marched me up to the Aeroflot flight. Stuck me in a middle seat, and um, off I went. And uh, I don't know if you've ever seen that movie Argo when they're yes. when, when they're yeah, all taken yeah. off out of <clears throat> out of Iran. That's what I felt like leaving Russia. I was just so happy to be out of there and uh, not going to Siberia. Okay. Did they? What was the official reason for your arrest? Did they tell you? Well, so I mean, of course, this was hugely significant. I was the largest foreign investor in their country, and and they weren't going to um, allow me in. And so we. Rolled out all of our contacts, and and and, and they uh, eventually sent me a letter saying that you've been denied entry because you you've now been deemed to be a threat to national security of Russia, and um, I was shocked. But I was also thinking to myself, you know, when the Russians go after you, um, they tend to do so with extreme prejudice. 
and that's not ex- getting kicked out is not extreme prejudice. And so I, I looked around to say, what else could they do to me? And I had a lot of people there, and we had a lot of money there. So I um, organized an emergency evacuation of my staff, and I got everybody out and their dependents. We got all of them out. They all came here to London. And then, uh, and then we sold everything, and, and we got all of our money out. Incredible. And so um, uh, you asked earlier, um, you know, was there, you know, do you think about selling out? And the irony of this whole situation is that um, they kicked me out and we liquidated at the top of the market. I mean, I, I don't think, I mean, and there's an expression, better lucky than smart. Um, nobody ever sells when you're supposed to, but um, they forced me to sell. Okay. Yeah. And everybody got their money at, at literally the top of the market. I mean, maybe 10% below the top of the market, but it was, it was remarkable. And it's never, ever seen those highs ever again in, in, in the next 15 years. Incredible. Things sort of took a turn for the worse when your Moscow offices were raided. So I got everybody out. I got all of our money out. The only thing we kept was an, an office in Moscow. And and I, I thought that, you know, I kept the office in Moscow just as sort of like a, an option. If, if ever the storm would blow over, I could some reestablish myself quickly. It's not easy to find an office in Moscow. I had prepaid, for, prepaid the rent for two years. So I kept the office, and there was a secretary sitting there. But I decided to move on to other things. I set up a new investment fund to invest in other parts of the world. All my clients were happy because we made them a lot of money. They invested with me in the new investment fund. It was all, all looking good. And then I get this panic call from the secretary in the Moscow office on June 4th, 2007. So this is now 18 months after I was expelled from Russia. And she says, Bill, there's, there's 25 police officers raiding the office. What should I do? And um, I said, I don't know, let me, let me get back to you. And I call up my lawyer in Moscow, an American guy. Uh, and um, he's really distracted when I get him on the phone. And I tell him that my office is being raided. He said, my office is being raided right now, too. There's 25 more officers looking for all of your documents. And the police in Moscow, 50 of them in total, were raiding my office and my law firm's office, looking for the stamps, seals, and certificates for our three investment holding companies, yeah. in which we had invested uh, all of our money in Russia. And the money, the companies were empty. We had sold everything. They didn't know that. And they found all these documents at the law firm. They seized them. And the next thing we know, we no longer own our investment holding companies. Um, using the documents seized by the police, the companies have been fraudulently re-registered out of our name into the name of a man um, who had been convicted of manslaughter, let out of jail early to put his name Wow. So he's just a kind of cipher for the for the government, really. Oh, for, the for these crooks. Yeah, for the, crooks, for the yeah. government and the crooks. And so uh, I'm really disturbed by this. I'm not I'm not disturbed. Bec- I, mean, I, I don't feel nervous on a, from a financial standpoint because our money was safe. It, it was in the West. So there was literally nothing in those. They were worth nothing. Like Twenty thousand dollars, which, you know, not, not nothing. But it's, yeah. I mean, you know, it's not Compared four, and a, half, not have, four yeah. and a half billion. No. Uh, and uh, but but the. Um, the thing that worried me was that if the police were working with murderers to steal companies and concocting fake criminal cases, I'm going to be traveling through the airport somewhere and get stopped and arrested um, if I don't figure this thing out and reverse it. Mm. So I say to myself, you know, we need a good lawyer for this, and um, I need to hire the best lawyer I could find. And there was a guy named Sergei Magnitsky. Sergei Magnitsky was a lawyer working for 
for an American law firm in Moscow. He was 35 years old, and he's one of these people who just could run circles around everybody else, true genius. And I asked Sergey to investigate and figure out what's going on and help me stop it. And so Sergey goes out and investigates, and, uh, and he comes back after his investigation, and he says, I figured it out. You're going to be amazed. He said, the, the, there are two parts of the scam. The first part didn't work. The first part, they wanted to steal your assets. But by, by the time they got to your banks, all the money was already out. He said, however, the second part of the scam did work. And he said, the second part of the scam was the most cynical thing I've ever seen in my life. And I've seen a lot of cynical things. And what had happened was, when we had sold all of our securities after I was uh, kicked out of the country, we had a huge profit. We had a billion dollars of profit. And we paid to the Russian government $230 million in capital gains tax. And what Sergei had discovered was that the people who stole our companies went back to the tax authorities a year later, and they filed an amended tax return. And the amended tax return said that there was a mistake made in the previous year's tax filing, <laughs> that these companies didn't earn a billion dollars. They earned zero. Okay. And they came up with a complicated way of it's explaining a mistake, this. Yeah. Um, and they said, therefore, the $230 million of taxes that was paid in the previous year was paid in error. And they applied for a $230 million tax refund, the largest tax refund in the history of Russia, on the 23rd of December, 2007, two days before Christmas. And it was approved and paid out the next day, Christmas Eve. The largest tax refund in the history of Russia paid out on Christmas Eve in one day on a fraud. And we were just, I was just, we were both amazed. I mean, I mean, this is, uh, it wasn't, first of all, it wasn't our money that was being stolen. It was the Russian government's money being stolen by Russian, corrupt Russian government officials. And Sergei and I were both of the opinion that Vladimir Putin uh, was a patriot, that he's a nationalist. He might not like foreigners. He might allow people to do rip me off. He might do all sorts of terrible things. But if he was a real patriot, how could he possibly allow his own officials to steal yeah. $230 million from his government? And so we figured if we just were to um, get this publicized and, and elevated to the highest level, then uh, Putin would step in and the good guys would get the bad guys. And that would be the end of the story. And so we wrote criminal complaints to the head of all law enforcement agencies in Russia. I went to TV, radio, newspapers, giving uh, interviews and explaining what had happened. And then Sergei went and formally gave testimony against the um, police officers who conducted the raid where the documents were seized and used in the fraud. And then we sat back and waited for the good guys to get the bad guys. Well, it turns out that in Putin's Russia, there are no good guys. Um, five weeks after Sergei testified against the police officers who conducted the raid to, to seize the documents that were used in the fraud, those same police officers came to his home on the 24th of November, 2008, and arrested him. They put him in pretrial detention. And then they began, the um, people in the jail began to torture him to get him to withdraw his testimony. They put him in cells with uh, 14 inmates and eight beds and left lights on 24 hours a day to impose sleep deprivation. Uh, they put him in cells with no heat and no window panes in December in Moscow, so he nearly froze to death. 
they put them in cells with um, no toilet, just a hole in the floor where the sewage would bubble up. They would move him from cell to cell to cell in the middle of the night. And the purpose of all this was to get him to withdraw his testimony against the corrupt police officers. And they wanted to get him to sign a false confession to say that he stole the money and he did so on my instruction. And they figured, here's a guy who um, you know, wears a blue suit and a red tie and uh, goes to buys a Starbucks in the morning and then goes to work in a fancy American law firm and sits in a cubicle. You know, they, they throw him into this hellhole and he'll buckle within a week. And what they didn't anticipate was that he may not have looked the part, but he was this incredible man of integrity and principle. And for him, the idea of perjuring himself and bearing false witness was more painful than the physical pain they were subjecting him to. And he just absolutely steadfastly refused to buckle. And as a result, the torture and the mistreatment got greater and greater. And after about six months of this, his health started to break down. He developed terrible pains in his stomach. He ended up losing 20 kilos. And he ended up getting diagnosed as having pancreatitis and gallstones. Were you in touch with him at this point? Well, we weren't able to talk to him at all. But the way we learned about everything that was going on was that Sergei Magnitsky um, wrote everything down. Wow. (laughs) And he wrote it down in a very interesting way. He was the, the true lawyer's lawyer. He knew the law. He knew the criminal code. And every time they violated the law in terms of his own, um, how they're mistreating him and torturing him, he would write a criminal complaint against the authorities. He would write them by hand, and once a month or so, he would hand a big stack of them to his lawyers. I'm amazed that the guards let him do that. Well, it's interesting, and and you're right to be amazed, but it was almost like um, uh, they didn't care because they didn't think that anything could happen to them. and everything is very procedural in Russia. You're entitled to file as many complaints as you want. That everything, you know, the, the system, the, the system on paper looks like it should work, except it just doesn't. And so, he would file the complaints, or his lawyer would file the complaints. The authorities would either reject them outright or just ignore them. But we got copies of them, and these complaints were the most heartbreaking documents you could ever imagine, just describing this unbelievable torture that he was being subjected to. So. He was supposed to have an operation uh, to to deal with this terrible physical uh, problem he was having on the 1st of August, 2009. And the um, jailers came to him again a week before the operation again, uh, tried to get him to confess, falsely confess to a crime he didn't commit. What would have happened to him had he confessed? What was the thing that he feared? They probably would have sent him to jail for 10 years or something like that or more. Um, and they would have gone after me. Um, uh, or you know, maybe they would have given him better treatment in order to go after me. I don't know. But, but um, uh, he was not willing to do that. Mm. For him, it was, just, it was just the whole thing was just wrong from start to finish. And so he just didn't play ball. And, um, and so a week before the operation, they came to him again. Again, he refused. And in retaliation for that, they abruptly moved him from... Uh, the prison that had a medical facility, uh, to a maximum security prison called Butyrka. It's an old medieval prison considered to be one of the most horrible hellholes in Russia. And most significantly for Sergei, there was no medical treatment there. They move him to Butyrka. His health completely breaks down. He goes into a terrible downward spiral, 
constant agonizing ear-piercing pain, and they refuse him all medical treatment. He and his lawyers wrote 20 different desperate requests to every different branch of the Russian criminal justice system, begging for medical attention. And every different branch of the criminal justice system either ignored or denied in writing his, his desperate requests. And on the night of November 16th, 2009, Sergei Magnitsky went into critical condition. And on that night, the uh, Butyrka authorities didn't want to have responsibility for him anymore. And so they put him in an ambulance and sent him to a different prison across town that had a medical wing. When he arrived at this other prison, instead of putting him in the emergency room, they put him in an isolation cell. They chained him to a bed, and eight riot guards came into that cell with rubber batons and beat him until he died. He was 37 years old. He left a wife and two children. That was November 16, 2009, a little over 10 years ago. My God. What did you feel like when you heard that news? It must have been the worst moment of your life. I got the news the next morning here in London, and it was just the most shocking, soul-destroying news I could have ever gotten. It was obvious to me that Sergei Magnitsky was effectively killed as my proxy. If he hadn't been working for me, he'd still be alive today. And, I mean, it was just so far beyond my worst-case scenario, I can't even tell you. And... um, it was the, the burden of responsibility was overwhelming. And, and when I was finally able to think straight and clearly, it became obvious that I needed to put aside everything else I was doing in my life and devote all of my time, all of my resources, and all of my energy to going after the people who killed him and make sure that they face justice. And this is the kind of birth of the Magnitsky Act, of course, which is this incredible tool for... Um bringing to justice this, these type of people? So at first, I thought that we could just get justice in Russia. Sergei wrote it all down. We had an absolute mountain of documentary evidence of what they had done to him. I would say that this is probably the most well-documented human rights abuse case that's come out of Russia in the last 35 years. And I would have expected, I didn't expect that they would prosecute the, the, the ring leaders, but I, I would have thought that they would have prosecuted all the people who's where there was documentary evidence of their involvement because it was just, you know, the mid-level people, they could throw them under the bus. Mm. And for me, I, that would have been a good start. Um, but they didn't even do that. The Russian authorities circled the wagons. Um, Vladimir Putin personally got involved in the case, and he personally exonerated every single official who played a role in Sergei Magnitsky's false arrest, torture, and death. Um, the Russian government gave promotions and state honors to the, some of the people who were most complicit in this crime. And in the most shocking miscarriage of justice, three years after they murdered Sergei Magnitsky, uh, they put him on trial in the first ever trial against a dead man in the history of Russia. And so pretty early on, it became obvious to me that there was no chance of getting justice inside mm. of Russia. And so I said, we need to get justice outside of Russia. But I'm a businessman. I'm a, I, I, I never knew, known anything about getting justice. And as I started to research it, I discovered that there really are no tools to getting justice outside of Russia. I mean, I, I kind of went through all the different possibilities. I, I, I went to the International Criminal Court. I went to the Chief Justice of the International Criminal Court. And, and uh, he said, you need 100,000 dead if you want to come here. Uh, I went to the European Court of Human Rights. And uh, and they issue judgments, but they don't issue judgments against people. They issue judgments against the country, and then they award the family like 30,000 euros. And uh, that didn't seem very satisfying to me. 
And if you have a torture or murder committed in Russia, there's no jurisdiction in the UK or US or any place like that. And so I was really very upset by this concept that, that people could just do this and get away with it. And, uh, and I said, I can't really allow that to happen. And so I, I said to myself, well, what, what was this all about? This crime, this murder, Sergei's torture was all about the theft of $230 million. And the people who stole that $230 million, they don't keep that money in Russia because as easily as they stole it, it could be stolen from them. They keep that money in the West, in London, in Geneva, in the south of France, villas. They send their kids to boarding school in Switzerland and here. Uh, they, they send their girlfriends on shopping trips to Milan. They send their wives to South Beach in Florida. And they just love spending their money, their, their, their ill-gotten gains in the West and keeping it safe in the West. And so I went to Washington and I met with a Democratic senator from Maryland named Benjamin Cardin and Republican senator from Arizona, John McCain. And I explained to them the story that I've just shared with you today. And I said, can we ban the visas and freeze the assets of the people who killed Sergei Magnitsky? And they were both so shocked and moved by the story of what happened to Sergei, they said yes. And that became the first version, the first draft yeah. of the Magnitsky Act, which was to freeze assets and ban visas of the people who killed Sergei Magnitsky. They put it on the um, proposed law book um, in October of 2010. And literally within minutes, their phones started ringing from Russians saying, you found the Achilles heel of the Putin regime. <laughs> This is what they care about more than anything else. Can you possibly sanction the people who killed my husband, my yeah. brother, my sister, my aunt? And after about a dozen of these calls, these senators realized they were onto something much bigger than just one case. They'd, they'd found a really valuable tool for going after the Putin regime. And so they added 65 words to the law to sanction all other gross human rights abusers in Russia. And then all of a sudden, when they put that onto the books, all victims started fanning out across Capitol Hill, telling their story to different senators and members of the House of Representatives. And when it went for a vote two years later, it passed the Senate 92 to 4. People don't, don't agree on anything in Washington, and this is the one thing they could agree on. It passed the House of Representatives with 89%. And on December 14, 2012, um, Barack Obama, President Obama, signed it into law. And Vladimir Putin went out of his mind. Yeah. He just went out of his mind. He immediately banned the adoption of Russian orphans by American families. Oh, my God. And, uh, and by the way, that, and that's, that sounds bad. It's actually much worse than it sounds. The orphans that were being adopted were the, what, the sick orphans. They weren't putting the healthy ones up for foreign adoption. And so these children would often not survive until the age of 18 in Russian orphanage. And um, Americans would take them and nurse them to health. And, and he's effectively sentencing his own orphans to death um, as a political retaliation to America for passing the Magnitsky Act. He made it his single largest foreign policy priority to repeal the Magnitsky Act. Mm. And you may remember, a lot of people may remember that um, in June of 2016, a Russian female lawyer named Natalia Veselnitskaya went to Trump Tower to meet with G <coughs> Donald Trump Jr., Jared Kushner, and Paul Manafort. And she was there with one specific request, which was to repeal the Magnitsky Act. Now, I'm, th I'm uh, thankful to say that nothing has been repealed. It stands firm in, uh, in the U.S. Moreover, the Magnitsky Act has been expanded. 
So the same senators said, if this is upsetting Putin so much, let's upset some more dictators. And so they made it the Global Magnitsky Act in 2016, which also passed nearly 100%. And then all of a sudden, other countries started doing the Magnitsky Act. And so we had Canada, uh, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. And for me, one of the biggest prizes was here in the UK. Um, they all, we know that they all have houses here in the UK. And after the Skripal poisoning in Salisbury, uh, Parliament passed the uh, Magnitsky Act here. And so we now have six countries, actually I should say seven countries, because just last week the Balkan country of Kosovo uh, announced without any effort on my part that they were doing a Magnitsky Act. So we have the three, three um, Baltic countries, uh, Canada, U.S., yeah. U.K., and Kosovo. And then uh, lined up for hopefully this year is the European Union, okay. Australia, and uh, Ukraine, Moldova, and various other places. And, yeah. and it's turned into a global movement. There, it's The bad guys absolutely hate this more than anything, not just the Russians, but all of them. Because the moment that you get put on the Magnitsky list, you become an international financial pariah. Yeah. And since most of these people are um, doing these crimes for money, uh, you know, it ruins their life. What hurts them more, the... Is it the status loss? Is it the, the money? Is it the fact that they can't now go to Antibes and sit on their yacht? Well, I think the, the, what hurts them the most is being publicly named because um, everybody wants to be respectable. Nobody wants to think of themselves as a criminal. No. They want to do these things and they want to be um, then enjoy the company of, of uh, civilized uh, society. And for them to be named, publicly named, is very bad. But then worse than that, they can't open bank accounts anymore. Yeah, um, bankers don't want to do business with them. Nobody wants to do business with them. All of a sudden, they're like nobodies. They went from like, you know, omnipotent to nobody like overnight because of the their name being uh, put on the sanctions list. And moreover, it's not just the guys who have been sanctioned. That, in fact, this is probably the, the most important part of this uh, law, is the fear that it creates among those who haven't yet been sanctioned. And so, this is an act of legal terror against dictators. They're all terrorized by the idea that, that, that they could be next. Why has it got under Putin's skin so badly? Because he can still, as we've seen, travel to the US and he's presumably still got access to all his cash and the veneer of respectability, I suppose, almost, that the, the, the presidential title gives him. Well, Putin doesn't hold any of the money that he's stolen in his own name. Right. So if he had any money in his own name, um, someone could then take that piece of paper and use it to blackmail him. And he's an expert on that because that's what he does with other people. And so all the money is held in the name of oligarchs, oligarch trustees, people he trusts. And um, those people are being sanctioned. And so um, his money is getting frozen. And, and money is the only thing that matters to him. What's his end game? I mean, surely he can buy all the suits and cigars he wants. What, what, what's he looking for? Well, first of all, in, in, in Russia, you can't be the most powerful person and not be the richest person. It's a total alpha male uh, place where, you know, in, in here you can be powerful and not wealthy or wealthy and not powerful, but you can't be that in Russia. You have to be everything. And so he has to have this money. And I don't think he even really thinks about cigars and suits. Yes, he, ha he has whatever he wants all the time. I mean, you know, his watch collection, you know, he's, he's on an official salary of... I don't know, $150,000 a year. His watch collection that you've seen, that you can see him wearing, um, is worth three million dollars. Just that. I mean, yeah. you know, and you know, you start adding on villas and all this other stuff, and you know, it's, you can see billions of dollars 
putting aside all the stuff you can't see. I mean, it's 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 real. It's there. Um, but for him, you ha- he has to be the richest guy out there. And and there, the, the, the problem for him, and this is where it gets into the terrible future for Russia, is that because he's stolen all this money and because it's being held by people he has to trust, he doesn't trust anybody. And so he can never be out of power because if he's out of power, then his money all just evaporates. Yeah. And he goes to jail. And maybe he goes worse than jail. And so for him, there is no uh, dignified departure okay. or retirement where he can go to the Putin presidential library and, no. <clears throat> and all that kind of stuff. No, what he has to do is stay in power forever. Until he dies. Until he dies. And so the presidential term, the, the Constitution only allows him to go till 2024. So he's yeah. got four years left. And he's now trying to change the Constitution yeah. so that um, he can then set up a new role um, which is above the president. So the president becomes like a divisional vice president, and uh, he becomes the head of the state council, and he can then sit in that role yeah. at, until the day he dies. And the government has recently resigned over that. Well, they didn't resign over that. He fired the government. Oh, okay. It was reported as them all kind of taking a stand. Is that not the case? No, 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 no. no. Nobody takes a stand. It's, he, he fired the government, or he asked them to put in their resignation. They all put in their resignation. And, um, and everybody is just, um, you know, he's the total absolute dictator of Russia. So we've got four years until he's meant to be out. How long do you think really he'll be in power for? Until the end of his natural life, however long that is. Okay, wow. Incredible. Bill, before I I go, I want to ask you what's next for you then, and what you've had these incredible kind of acts in your life. Will there be a third act? Do you think think you'll go back to business? Or do you think now this is your, your life's work? Um, I, I definitely won't go back to business as a profession. Um, no. uh, I mean, I, I loved being an a investor and a, and a uh, hedge fund manager. That was a really uh, fa- very satisfying, intellectually stimulating profession. But uh, what I'm doing now is uh, very – I've got a real mission. Um, it's not just for Magnitsky anymore. It's for, um, for other victims as well. And as satisfying as it was uh, – Successfully fighting for money, it's much more satisfying fighting for justice. And, and uh, uh, there's nothing that makes me feel better than when we get a big win in, in our campaign for justice. Brilliant. Bill, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, if you enjoyed that episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast, you'll almost certainly love the Gentleman's Journal magazine, the world's finest dispatch from the front line of luxury, entrepreneurship and style. In fact, lucky podcast listeners like you now get 20% off our annual subscription. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com to find out more.